Hi. 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 All right. <clears throat> so we get to jump in tonight. Okay. We get to jump in tonight. <laughs> Back into the Gospel of John. Uh, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open. We're going to be in John chapter 8 tonight. While you guys are turning there, I want to uh, show you guys my family real quick, as it were. Uh, I talked about my wife the other night. Um, here she is. Boom. Jeez. Uh, 28 years that woman graced our planet, and for 10 years she was mine, and she is just the goat of all goats. That's my wife. Uh, and then... Um, this is what my family looks like now. There's a, me and the homies. That's our Christmas card. Yeah. You'll, uh, you'll see me walking around. My, my sister came up with me. She helps take care of the kids. She, when Paige passed, she quit her job and kind of came full time to help and to save me from the madness that is singled out of five kids. And so she's uh, kind of like the superhero that, that really allows me to be able to teach and to, I mean, leave the house, period. And so you'll see her walking around taking care of the kids as well. Yeah, yeah, she's great. <clears throat> that's Renee, but that's my family. And uh, that's what happens when your wife passes away and every bad idea you had about what Christmas card you were gonna do where your wife goes, that's dumb. After she's gone, there's no more checks and balances in your home. So you just get to do all the dumb stuff that your wife cautioned you appropriately not to do. So that's our Christmas card this year. All right, here we go. John chapter 8. We're jumping into the idea tonight of um, the aim of tonight is to kind of present the truth about what sin is. Okay, so sin is a word that is used almost exclusively inside of religious terms. Uh, let me break it down for you. Sin might sound like a kind of a churchy word, but here's what it is. It's any thought, word, action, or attitude that we have as human beings that falls short of God's perfect standard for us as his people, okay? It's a rebellion against God. And I think a lot of us, when we think about sin, we try to justify our sin and we try to make it lesser. But when we do that, what we really think is we look at the people next to us and we might think, I might be sinful, but I'm not as bad as that person. Or we might justify the sinful things that we do, the rebellion that we've committed against God by saying, well, I'm only human or nobody's perfect. The real aim for tonight to get to the truth of what sin is, is we want to walk out of here with one goal. And that is, and I hope that you're able to kind of pray this in your heart as we're getting started. Here's what I hope. By the time we leave this room, that you will, maybe for the first time in your life, see sin the way that God does. It's not super pertinent, it's not extremely important to see sin the way that you do, because the Bible says that our view of sin is tainted with sin, right? Our view of what we've done wrong is tainted by the fact that we do wrong things. In other words, as referees and as judges, we don't make good judges. We don't know what good is, we don't know what bad is. And so we want to kind of surrender and say, God, why don't you show me what sin is, what sin does, how sin works, and if and how I can be freed from the sin in my life. John chapter 8, we're going to watch Jesus once again interact 
with what society would consider to be basically the opposite of what we would expect Messiah to do. We talked about the Messianic expectations yesterday. This group thought he was going to come as a conquering king like David. This group thought he was going to come in a prophetic word like Moses. This group thought that he would come and nothing but do nothing but miracles and restore Jerusalem like uh, Elijah. And yet Jesus, not just in that day and age, but in our lives, shows up in a very different way than we expected. And the question that remains that we started last night is, what do you do when Jesus shows up and wants to rule your life a different way than you want him to? What happens when the picture of Jesus that we're given is different than the picture of Jesus that we've painted? What happens when the contract negotiations break down and it turns out what God's calling us to is to sign our name to the bottom and hand it across the table? If what is most important to you was taken away, would God still be good? Would he still be worth worshiping? Would he still be God? So here we jump into the text. This is another really amazing story, especially if you've grown up in America, there's kind of this cultural narrative that is out there that Christians or that God is, is in some way um, biased or chauvinistic or against women. That if you read the Bible, you get this picture that men are dominant and that women are lesser than. And this is kind of the word picture. This is like 1950s utopian uh, word picture that if you're a Christian, you probably think that women are inferior to men. Or this is just kind of the way that Christianity can be pitched sometimes. It's all about men and women must remain silent and be submissive. And listen, when you read the text and you watch Jesus interact with these women, he's doing something so culturally shocking and offensive in his culture by uplifting by loving. Last night, we talked about the story of the woman, the, the Samaritan woman. At the end of that story, you know what Jesus does? He announces himself as the Messiah for the first time on planet Earth. The first time, Je the word that came out of his mouth when Jesus says, I am the Messiah, he says it to a Samaritan woman at noon at a well in a dejected, degenerate part of the world. Jesus is not here to fit our cultural stereotypes or to fit our cultural norms. He loves and uplifts and honors women even when culture said that was not the right thing to do. And we're gonna watch him do the same thing again tonight. Here's what it says. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Okay, so in um, Jewish law, two things to know about being caught in adultery. First one is that this was, a, this was a sin punishable by death, okay? So the covenant that you make with your, with your spouse in Jewish custom and in Jewish thought is that the covenant you make to your spouse, you are actually a walking, talking representation of God's covenant to mankind, so when you stand up as a man on your wedding day, which is, is the same way that the, 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 a proper efficient still is going to talk about it today, do you, man, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold in sickness and in health, till death parts us, if so, then say, I do. This covenantal nature, covenant means a contract without stipulations. It means I'm going to do my part even if you're not doing your part. That's the covenantal nature of God. God, God says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die on a cross for you. I'm gonna be your God. And sometimes you're not even gonna be acting like my people, but I'm still going to be your God. So 
a wedding ceremony is a representation of God's covenantal love for us as people. So if you were in Jewish society and you took an oath to be a representative of God's character and then you went and had sex with someone that wasn't your spouse or if you cheated on your spouse with somebody else or if you were uh, emotionally intimate with someone that wasn't your spouse, what are you telling the world around you that God is like? You're saying God is a cheater. God is unfaithful. God breaks his covenant. Your marriage was representative of God's love. So the Jewish law stated, if you were an adulterer or if you were an adulteress, the crime for your adultery was death. You have misrepresented the nature and character of God. In order to be tried for adultery, you needed two witnesses to your crime. That means you needed two people to catch you in the act. A lot of theologians, therefore, believe that this was a setup, that this woman was lured in somehow and was set up. That's the only way that you can try someone for adultery in this culture, particularly to put them to death. Here's what we see. A woman who was caught in adultery is now thrown before Jesus. The way that it would have worked is the, the most high and mighty, oldest elder rulers of the town, the religious elite, would have gathered together. They would have used the lowlier servants to bury the woman up to about her waist in dirt. Then they would have used water to kind of push it in to make sure that she didn't move or leave. So only her upper half was exposed. The rest of it was underground. So she couldn't move, she couldn't defend herself, she couldn't run away. Then from the oldest to the youngest of the ruling religious tribe, they would pick up rocks and they would throw rocks at her until she died. This was this woman's punishment. This was this woman's sentence. So we don't want to take this lightly. If you walked into a scenario like this today, the stakes are high. And this woman is thrown before Jesus and is being buried up to her waist and the religious leaders think they've caught Jesus finally, and they are going to try him, and they're going to use this scenario to convict Jesus. How come? I'll tell you why. Because in Jewish law, she was guilty of the punishment uh, that is due to adulterers, which is death. So under Jewish law, she should be put to death. That's what the book of Moses says. This is what ought to happen. Under Roman law, Jews didn't have permission to put a woman to death. They needed Rome's permission to do so. So they throw this woman in front of Jesus and they say, what are you going to do? Are you going to allow us to stone her based on Jewish law? Or are you going to break that law? And if you do allow us to stone her, then you're breaking Roman law because you're permitting death on your watch. You're allowing a group of Jews to pronounce a death sentence on a woman. So they basically say, we got you. We've caught you. You now can't escape. You either, uh, you either usurp Rome by allowing us to stone this woman to death or you usurp Jewish law by saying she shouldn't be stoned to death. So as they put her forward, they basically have Jesus in checkmate. They're done. They think he's done. This is the end. And Jesus, his response is so calculated, but it's so steeped and covered in a deep love and respect for this woman. Here's what happens. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone this woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. You see, to the Pharisees, she's an object. 
And this is what women were in this culture. They're commodities. They were tradable. They were usable. They, they weren't to be respected. They weren't to be loved. In the book of Ephesians chapter 5, it's one of the most popular passages when it comes to marriage in the Bible. And Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In our modern culture, which one of those is more offensive? Wives, submit to your husbands. We get all up in arms about that. Did you know that in their culture, that wasn't the offensive statement? In Jesus' day and age, the idea that women would submit to their husbands was par for the course. Do you know what wasn't par for the course? That men would love their wives. That was the truly egregious new law that was being brought in. That men would be called to submit to their wives as to the Lord. That's what the book of Ephesians begins with, Ephesians 5 begins with. And then that men ought to love their wives, not just use them, not just mistreat them, not just commoditize them, not just use them for bearing children, love them. This is Jesus' culture. But to the Pharisees, she is still just an object. Something really unique happens here. They think they have Jesus dead to rights. They think they've got this woman accused, and they think that he's not going to be able to get out of it. Here's what Jesus does. This is, gosh, I love Jesus, okay? <laughs> Here's what he does. It says, then Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger, which causes every mind in here to ask the same question, which is, <laughs> what are you writing, bro? Uh, the, the, gravity of the, uh, the gravity of the moment, okay? Your best friend has just been thrown in front of the town. She's probably still in whatever attire she was in when she was committing adultery. So she's humiliated. She, she's possibly in the nude. She's in, full of deep shame. She's been accused. She's guilty. And now she's in front of the whole town and they start to bury her. And they, they, you can imagine the yelling and the screaming and the men who are hurling insults and spitting on this woman and ridiculing her and mocking her. How dare you? You are an adulteress. And the women, how do you think the women of the town feel? She's sleeping with their husbands. How they're screaming. They're getting there. They're pulling her hair. They're doing all these things. And here's Jesus. And it says he stoops down and he starts to write with his finger in the ground. What in the world are you doing at a time like this? When Messiah comes, he will. The book of Jeremiah makes it clear. It says this, when Messiah comes, he will write their sins in the dust of the earth. Whose sins? You see, the Jewish ruling council, the elders of the town, the ones who have picked up stones to stone her to death are standing in front of her and there's contention on this. I don't know this for sure. I'm, sh I'm, I'm showing you my shrugged shoulders. As a theologian, this is my best guess. My best guess is that Jesus stoops down and um, how many of the men around Jesus are strangers to Jesus? Good. He knows them all. He knit them together in their mother's womb. So they go, here's this stranger, Jesus. And Jesus goes, Eliab, Issachar, Benjamin. And here's what I think he's doing. I think he starts with the oldest, moves down to the youngest. The first one who would be allowed to throw a stone would be the oldest, most righteous ruling council member. And I think he looks at him and let's say his name is Malachi. 
and he writes Malachi in the dirt. And he puts a line under Malachi's name, and then he starts writing name, date, and sin, and when it occurred. Malachi, yesterday at 4.45, you lusted after another man's wife. Malachi, yesterday at 3.32, you lied and said that you were leaving home, but truth is you were still lazy and doing nothing. Malachi, three days ago, you were the one who actually stole. Malachi, you were, and Malachi's sitting there going, what? How does he know this? Malachi's looking at the next person, and the next person, Eliab's sitting here going, <laughs> he got you. And then Jesus goes, Eliab. <laughs> Eliab. Yesterday, 2.22 in the afternoon, you had hate in your heart towards your brother because you're jealous of him. Eliab, yesterday at 1.30, you spent way too long checking out that girl even though you're a married man. Like, oh, oh <laughs> got him. Okay. And something happens. Jesus makes a declaration then. After finishing at least the first part of this process, he gets up after he's humiliated the first three men who are sitting there licking their chops, ready to kill this woman. Can you imagine the heart of a man who's excited at carrying out the sentence of killing a woman? who's rearing and ready to go, who set up a stage in order to convict this woman. It's all a trap, and they're going, yes, it's my turn. And Jesus goes, oh, okay, yeah, Malachi, Eliab, Issachar, Jacob, Benjamin. And one by one, they look down and they go, what in the heck is going on here? And then Jesus stands up, and I wonder if he does this with a little bit of jovial nature. or I wonder if he does it with seriousness or if he's almost excited. He stands up and he goes, oh, you guys, I had an idea. Um, we, haven't we haven't really like drawn straws to see who gets to go first. I wonder if Jesus picks up a rock and he goes, okay, I've got an idea. Let's go in order of, um, we'll start with the, the first person who gets to throw a stone is the one who's never committed a sin before. Do you think, you think Eliab's gonna walk forward? Eliab's walking over to Jesus like, <laughs> okay, let's just erase that right there. And it says one by one, they put their rocks down and they walk away. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Whoever isn't without sin, cast the first. And there goes Eliab. All right, ne next up. Whoever has never sinned before can throw the first. Oh, there goes Benjamin. Oh, there goes Issachar. Oh, there goes Malachi. Oh, there goes. And one by one, these religious leaders who are, you've got to imagine, they are just infused with hate towards Jesus. And this woman is weeping and crying and terrified for her life. And she starts hearing thud, 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 thud. And as she looks up, these men who were excited to stone her to death have one by one dropped their rocks and started to walk away. Here's what the text says. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he continued to stoop down and write in the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Does Jesus have the right to throw a rock? Yes. Yes. Did the woman deserve to have a rock thrown at her? Yes. She's guilty. 
The text never once, ever declares that she's innocent or that she was set up and wasn't guilty of a crime. She, she could have been set up. It could have been a sting operation, but she still did it. No one's arguing that. The woman doesn't even argue that. She knows she was dead to right. She knows she was caught red-handed. She's completely aware of the fact that she did br- break Jewish law. And the punishment for the breaking of Jewish law was what? Death. Death. Here's how Jesus concludes this story. Jesus straightened up after everyone had left and he asked her, woman, remember this is a deep term of endearment, okay? So if you get home and your mom's like, how was Meadow Ranch? Don't go, woman, why do you ask me such things, okay? Our culture has changed. You no longer call your mom woman. You don't call anyone woman. If I called my mom woman, I would be wearing a slap mark on my face the rest of the day. Any of y'all feel me? Any of y'all feel me? You're like, yeah, that would, <laughs> that would not go over well, right? But again, if, if you'll permit me inside the grounds of biblical interpretation to make this culturally relevant to us, Jesus says to her, daughter, Beloved one, my girl, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She responds, no one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And he stands back up and he helps her up to her feet. And Jesus holds two things in perfect tension. Grace. God's unmerited favor. It's the the free gift of God given to us as his children that we didn't work for, we didn't even ask for, we didn't even know that we wanted it when it showed up on our doorstep. Jesus extends grace. And he holds it perfectly in tandem with truth does Jesus say don't worry it's not a big deal read the text does Jesus say not a big deal no his exact phrase is this so you can answer the rest of the questions I'm about to ask you woman where are your accusers has no one condemned you no one she said Jesus responded then neither do I condemn you go and leave your life of sin Does Jesus ever say, it wasn't that big of a deal? Does Jesus ever say, I'm going to let this one slide? Does Jesus say, this was bad, but I've seen worse? Does Jesus say, I'm going to look the other direction and let this one go? Jesus uses very intentional language. He says, then neither do I condemn you. He doesn't say she's innocent. He doesn't even say she's guiltless. He doesn't even say that the punishment that she deserves will not be carried out. He just tells her, the condemnation that you deserve will not be brought on you. I need you guys all to, this is going to be a fun time for you to talk, but I really want you to lean in on this because this is probably a concept that I didn't get until I was like 18 years old that I want you to get today. It's a little bit heady of a concept, but I I really want you to, this is what I'm going to treat like adults, and I'm going to challenge your brains, okay? 
Lean in with me. Ready? Can God do whatever he wants to do? Yes. Ask you again. Can God do whatever he wants to do? Yes. Shh, walk with me, walk with me. We're gonna go on a journey together. Is God limited in what he can do? Yeah. Listen, listen. God is absolutely limited in what he can do. The notion that God can do whatever he wants is a mischaracterization of who God is. Does... Could God wake up, well, I'm anthropomorphizing God, could God wake up tomorrow and announce to the world that from here on out, rape is okay? But I thought you said he could do whatever he wanted to do. Shh, yeah, don't respond to me. This is all rhetorical. He can't. Why? God is a maximally great being which means he is perfect in justice. He is perfect in love. He is perfect in all that he does. And he's limited by his character. God cannot do anything that goes against his character. He can't. You wanna know where that's really, that's really important for us to understand? The Bible says that the God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never change like the shifting shadows of culture. He's always consistent. You want to know why we don't have a sequel to the Bible? We don't need one because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the book of Hebrews, it says no matter what we've done, we all as God's children can boldly approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because we know that because God's character is solid and he can never go against it, that if you repent of your sins and fall into the hands of God and say, I'm sorry for what I've done, how how often does God forgive us? Always. Does he ever not? You want to know why? He's limited by his character. When we respond in repentance, the reason we can have confidence that he hears us and that he gives us inside of that pardon for our sin and that we can be excited and know that we're going to heaven is because we don't have to sit here and guess whether or not today God accepted it or not. Do you want to know why? Because God is limited by his character and thank the Lord he is. He will never go against his own law. He will never commit sin. He will never switch his character. He is always the same. He is bound by his very nature. Could Jesus have sinned when he was here on planet earth? No, because Jesus was fully man and fully God. Can God sin? No. Can Jesus sin? No. no. He can absolutely be tempted. He can go through trials, but his character demands that he remains perfect because he can't go against his very own character. Why is this important? I'm going to finish with this analogy and I want you to walk with me on it because this is the very root of what we talk about when we talk about sin, okay? And I know sometimes as junior hires, when we start doing analogies, everyone gets like really talkative and you want to make a comment about everything. For sure, I know you do. Try to just walk with me on this. I'm going to talk to you like adults. I'm asking you to respond like adults, okay? 
The Bible says this again and again. It's one of the forgotten theologies of your time. It's one of the forgotten understandings of our age. Before I do that, let me point you to somewhere in scripture to, so that you understand that I'm not telling you this as me. I'm explaining this to you from scripture. In the book of Psalm chapter 75, I'll read it to you. Psalm chapter 75, verse eight says this. Beginning at verse six. No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. He brings one down and he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to the depths of their stomachs. This analogy is repeated time and time again in scripture where God seems to indicate that the, the punishment for our sins from the day that you were born, the book of Psalms says we were born into sin, we were born into iniquity. And then every day since then, with every thought, word, action, attitude you've ever had that falls short of God's perfect standard, and let me make it clear, you've all sinned multiple, 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 multiple times today. I have sinned dozens and dozens of times today. We don't just sin in what we do. We sin in the good in front of us that we don't do. We sin by what we commit. We sin by what we omit. We sin every time God's perfect standard for us isn't lived up to. And every time we sin against God, he's the king of the universe. We commit cosmic treason. When we know God's law, and the Bible says it's written on our hearts, every time we go against it, if you're in the Middle Ages and the king puts out a decree, let's say he puts out 10 decrees, you shall have no other kings before me. You shall not make any images of any foreign kings. You shall remember the king's day by keeping it holy. You should honor your father and mother, for this exalts the king. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false testimony. You shall not, if the king gave out all these decrees, and you said, I hear you, king, but in my life, I'm king. Do you know what happens when you're in someone else's kingdom and you declare yourself king? You know what we call that? Treason. Do you know what treason is punishable by? Death. Do you know what sin is? When God made you, created you, crafted you, knit you together, and put you on planet Earth, you were born into his cosmic kingdom. And every time we sin, knowing the decree of God, we say, I hear you, but in my world, I'm king. We, have, we are all guilty of treason on a cosmic scale against a perfect and holy God. I don't want you to see your sin like your friends see your sin. I don't want you to see sin the way that you like to see your sin. Happy little accidences, little white lies, not that big of a deal. At least I'm not Hitler. That's what we tell ourselves. And the reason we tell ourselves that is because Satan is a crafty serpent who lives and moves and breathes like a prowling lion. And he wants nothing more than for you to walk into this chapel and to hear a conversation on sin and you to think, whoa, God is overreacting to this sin thing. Do you want to know why it seems like God's reaction to sin is an overreaction? Because you and I are not good people. 
The Bible makes it very clear. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is no one good, not even one. No one is righteous and stands on their own. No one seeks after God. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible makes it clear. We don't know what's right and what's wrong. So when we walk around and go, I don't know what the big deal is with God. Sin is not that big of a big deal to me. Shouldn't be that big of a deal to him. The, the, the aim is that we would see sin through God's eyes. And when we look at sin through God's eyes, you're going to get a very different picture than when you ask yourself, what should be the result of your sin? The Bible uses this analogy again and again, and it says every time we sin, including, the Bible says, by just the nature of our character, by being born of man, we've inherited the father, our father's sin. Our original father, Adam, committed mutiny against God. Just because we're his descendants, we're already born into iniquity. So congratulations. If you're in this room and you were born of man and woman, you're already dead in sin, already. And don't make a mistake. Don't go, well, that's not fair. I didn't even do that, friend. That wasn't your only sin. Hundreds of thousands of millions of sins that you've committed every minute of your life since then. It's not just what you've done. It's what you've left undone. It's every time you've seen someone getting bullied, you've seen something that you should pick up. It's, it's the Holy Spirit prompting you to move and you don't move. The Bible says that every time we do that, into a cup, this is what Psalm 75 says, this is what Revelation chapter 14 says. It says that God is pouring for us a drink that's made uniquely and specifically for us. Every time we sin, every bad thought we have, Every time we say something that we shouldn't say, every time we do not say something we should say, every time it's time to worship the Lord and instead we focus on ourselves, that's a sin of omission. Every time that one of your friends is getting bullied and you sit idly by, there's another sin of omission. Every time you look at God's perfect command and you think that he's overdoing it, you've mischaracterized God. Every time you go on a missions trip and you think it makes you a better person, that's called pride and it becomes even worse. Jesus, when he comes into the world, contrary to popular opinion, doesn't re remit sin. He doubles down. He says, listen, if you've hated your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. If you've lusted after someone in your life, you're already guilty of adultery. He doubles down and he says, I want you to see sin through my eyes. And it's, the Bible says that everything we've ever done has stored up for us a cup that is, what did the book of Psalms say? It's foaming and it's brimming and it's the wrath of God. You see, the treason that we've committed, God is limited by his character, which is why with the woman caught in adultery, Jesus never says, not a big deal to me, not guilty. He simply says, I do not condemn you. Could Jesus have walked up to her and said, you know what? I'm going to let this one go. You want to know why? Because he's limited by his character and his character necessitates that he is always just. If you had a judge in your town and let's say someone killed a member of your family and that judge looked at the defendant and they went, oh, you're guilty. The evidence points to it. I know your heart. I know that you're guilty. I'm going to let this one slide. We would all go, you're a bad judge. 
You would do not deserve the honor of being called a judge. You didn't make a good judgment. You are wrong. This is inappropriate. The, the punishment of the sin that that person's committed must be paid. The character of God necessitates that that woman caught in adultery must pay for her sin. Then how can Jesus let her walk away and say, neither then do I condemn you. It seems almost like a tension that we can't work out. Well, if you're a good judge, you couldn't look at an adulteress and, and tell her that she can walk away. You would have to punish that sin. But yet, the way the text plays out, Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin. I do not condemn you. Do you want to know why he's able to say that? The Bible tells us that our sin that we've committed, you and I, are guilty of every possible sin man can commit. The book of James says, if you stumble in any part of the law of God, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. So if you think to yourself, well, maybe I said a bad word, but at least I'm not a murderer, biblically speaking, yeah, you are. You might think to yourself, yeah, well, yeah, maybe I tease some people, but, uh, but, but at, at least I'm not guilty of all the really bad crimes. The Bible says, yeah, you are. If a man or woman stumbles in one part of the law, the book of James says, he is guilty of breaking the whole thing. So let me ask you a question. This is another one I want you to lean into. This is a thinking cap question, and it might offend some of you, but I told you I would. I promise you at the beginning of the week I'd be offending you. Who killed Jesus? Seems like a big question. I love it. The boldness starts to set in a little bit more. Maybe a couple little comments. Who killed Jesus? You did? What's your name? Boston? Shh. Boston. You find in yourself, you believe you have the capability to kill the king of the universe. You think you can do that? I didn't think so either. Who killed Jesus? You did? What's your name? Bella, you killed Jesus. You think inside your body you possess the ability to kill the king of the universe. I'm sorry, but yes. You do? No. Let me ask you a question, Bella. Where is that found in scripture? It's in the Bible? Somewhere? It is? Interesting. Who said it? You. You, what's your name? Adam. Let me ask you a question, Adam. Who killed Jesus? I asked Adam. Walk with me. Listen. I asked Adam, who killed Jesus? Adam responded, 
God did. And he is absolutely right. Listen, 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 listen. This is one of the most important things you can understand about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't miss this. Isaiah chapter 53 says this. Jesus grew up before us like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty that would attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and yet we held him in low esteem. Surely this man took upon our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was placed on Jesus, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on Jesus the sin of all of us. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a slam to the slaughter. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Who killed Jesus? God did. Why did God kill Jesus? Shh, rhetorical. God killed Jesus because every waking moment of our life, we have added to the cup of wrath this is the hell that we deserve. This is eternity separated from God that we deserved. This is the punishment we deserved. Jesus was crucified for one reason, because you deserve to be crucified. Jesus bore the forsakenness of his father on the cross. He screams out in a loud voice, God, I don't feel like you're here anymore. I feel like you're absent. Eli, Eli, lemasabachtani in the original language. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did, Je why did God forsake Jesus? Because you and I deserve to be forsaken. Do you understand? On the cross, Jesus wasn't just dying to go, look how much I love you. He wasn't dying just to go, look at me. I, I'll show you victory over death. He died on the cross because I was supposed to. How can God's perfect justice be upheld? How can you look at the adulteress and say, I don't condemn you? Because he paid for her crimes. How was she able to walk free? Because the punishment that she deserved was death and Jesus did it for her. When Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's weeping and he's crying, it's the day before he's gonna be crucified, he says a prayer and in his prayer he asks for one thing. He says, God, Father, Abba, Dad. And then he prays a unique prayer and he says, Father, if there is any way to let this up, pass from me, then let it be so. But not as I will, but yours be done. What cup is he talking about? He's talking about your 
cup. When Jesus is in the garden, the day before he's crucified, he looks at the cup of wrath that you deserve, that you've earned, that I've earned, that we have earned because of our life. We've earned because of our transgression, and we've earned because of our, of our rebellion. We earned this cup, and we should have to drink it. And that means death now. It means death forever. It means hell separated from God in constant torment for the rest of eternity. This is what our sin has bought us. Romans 6.23, the wages of our sin is death. And Jesus, on the night before he goes to the cross, asks God the Father, if there's any way for me to not have to drink Chris Hilkin's cup, would you please let it pass from me? If there's a way that I don't have to drink Bella's cup, would you let it pass from me? If there's a way that I don't have to drink Boston's cup, if there's a way that I don't have to drink your cup, if there's a possible way I can avoid, you want to know why? Because the wrath of God is perfect. His character is perfect. God loves perfectly, God judges perfectly, and God punishes perfectly. And Jesus, knowing his father's perfect character, knows that the torment and the torture of the cross and the hell of forsakenness was coming for him. And he prays a prayer, and he says, do not make me drink their cup. But then he finishes his prayer by saying, not as I will, but as yours be done. How can Jesus possibly look at an adulterous woman who is guilty of her crime and say, you will not pay the price for your sin? He doesn't say no one will. He says, you will not pay the price. Do you want to know why? Because it was Jesus's plan all along to pay the price for that woman's sin. So who killed Jesus? God did. Why did God kill Jesus? Because we deserve to die in his place. The reason Jesus died on the cross is because he was fulfilling the punishment of treason that you committed. When Jesus died on the cross and he was born on that cross with his arms out, humiliated, naked, tortured, crown of thorns pressed in his skull with insults being hurled at him. Do you want to know why he underwent all of that? Because that is the punishment for the crime of treason that I committed. Do you want to know why? Someday I'm going to see God face to face and he's going to look at me and he's going to say, come into heaven, come in and find rest. You are my child. He's not going to do it because I was good. He's not going to do it because I never did anything wrong. He's not going to do it because I'm guilt free. He's not going to do it because I never did anything. And he's not going to do it because he pardoned my sin. He's going to do it because when Jesus Christ died on the cross and because I believe in Jesus and I trust in him, when Jesus drank that cup of wrath, he drank my cup. That's why I can look at God face to face someday and he can call me child because Jesus bore the punishment. Therefore, the good judge is able to uphold his perfect justice and say, the crime of your sin was paid so I can maintain my perfect justice. And in my perfect love, I've made a way for sinners and enemies of, of me. That's what Romans 5 calls all of us who aren't in Christ. I have through my love and my perfect character made a way that enemies can become children of mine. God upholds every part of his character simultaneously on the cross. His justice is poured out. His love is shown. His grace is given. And his mercy is satisfied all on the cross. He never lets go of any part of his character. And that's really good news for you and I. Do not make the mistake of thinking that Jesus died on the cross just as an example of how we can overcome death. Jesus died on the cross because I deserve to die on the cross. 
Jesus experienced hell because I deserve to experience hell. And there are two people on planet earth. There are those who in this lifetime will look at that cup of wrath and go, Jesus, in humility and in submission, I don't, go, I don't get why you do this, but I'm giving you the cup of wrath that I deserve. Why would you drink this for me? How could you love me that much? How could you sacrifice that deeply for me? And for those of us who are in Christ, we have passed our cup of wrath across the table and Jesus takes three steps back to the cross and he drinks it deep, he widens his arms and he dies for you and I. But there are most of us in this room, most of all of humankind will look at that cup of wrath and go, I think I can get there on my own. Most of mankind, and a lot of you sitting in this room right now, you still hold your own cup of wrath. Because in our pride and in our sin, we think, it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. And I know that giving my cup up to him would call him king and it would surrender to him and I'm king. I don't surrender to anybody. I do my own thing. I live by my own rules. I'm God of my universe. I know it's treason. I'm not really that worried about the cup. Treasonous cup, I don't care. I'll drink it. What a foolish endeavor. You forget that you're imperfect. You forget that God's wrath is perfect. You forget that God's justice is perfect. And one day when you meet him face to face, you know what happens to every man ever, from the bulkiest man on planet earth to the angels in heaven, when they meet God face to face, you know what they do? They cower like children. They fake their own death because they sit for the first time in front of a perfect and holy God. Friend, don't make that mistake. And I don't understand why but the cup of wrath that you and I deserve, Jesus on the cross is extending his hand to you and he's saying, I'll drink it. You give your life to me, you give your sin to me, pass the cup across the table and I'll drink it. And the cross is the perfect picture of all of the culmination of the character of God displayed for all to see. Perfect justice, perfect wrath, perfect love, perfect mercy and perfect grace culminating on this widespread arms of Jesus as he gives up his life and he says, it is finished. What is finished? The war between you and God is over because Jesus paid the price of treason that you and I committed. That's sin. Sin isn't a small deal. Sin cannot be pardoned. It must be paid. We, the Bible doesn't give us permission to compare ourselves to our neighbor. You can't go, I'm, I'm sinful, but I'm not as sinful as that guy over there. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible holds you up to the perfect character of Jesus. And if you fall one inch short of God's perfection, you are guilty, culpable of treason, and it's punishable by death, both here and forever, in a place called hell. Make no mistake. God killed Jesus. Because God's wrath was meant for you and I. And the perfect God of the universe must enact his justice. And for whatever crazy, grace-filled, loving, reckless reason, Jesus stood in the place where you and I deserve to stand. And he bore the this, this shame and sin that we deserve. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin, though he knew no sin, that I could become his righteousness. There are those, in us, those of us in here who don't hold our cup anymore. We gave it to Jesus. He drank it in deep on the cross and we worship him for that. And there are those in us in this room who still hold it. Right now, you are currently an object of God's wrath 
And in his loving faithfulness and in his patience and his loving kindness, you're still breathing. You're here at this camp. You're hearing the gospel. Your counselors, your youth pastors, your leaders are all explaining to you that you've got a bad case and the cup you must drink is fierce and forever. It's tormentous. It's hell. And they're warning you, don't drink it yourself, friend. Romans chapter one says, this is the great separation of all mankind. Those who hold their cup and those who have given their cup to Jesus. There are only two types of people in this world. Those who worship self and those who with bended knee worship the king of the universe. Period. Tomorrow night, we're gonna talk about the gospel, which asks a simple question. What must I do to pass my cup across the table and have Jesus drink it for me? What does the process look like by which I surrender the wrong things that I've done, the wrong things I've omitted and committed? What does it take? What must I do in response to understanding the weightiness, the depth, the death that my sin has caused? How can I possibly pass my cup of wrath over to Jesus and have him drink it? If that were possible, it would be really good news, wouldn't it? That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. And tomorrow night, we're gonna answer that question. What must I do then to be saved? What must I do to move from being under the wrath of God to being under the love of God, to move from being God's enemy to God's child? And we're gonna walk through for you all to see firsthand and for some of you to make a decision to turn from your life of sin, to hand over your cup of wrath and to give it to Jesus. Tonight, I want you to sit in the heaviness of this moment, though. Your sin has cost you everything. And the punishment of your sin is not pardon, it's death. That means for the sin that you've committed, someone will die. That's the punishment of a perfect, just God towards treason. Please don't walk out of here with the same vision that you had of sin when you walked in. Don't look at sin through your eyes your feeble, broken eyes. Look at it through the holy, perfect, and just eyes of the God of the universe. See yourself in that light. And then once you realize how broken and worm-like we are and sin-filled we are, you get to finally think, why in the heck would you die for a worm like me? Why in the world, with all of my brokenness and sin-stained heart, would you ever think of dying for a traitor and a treasonous man like me? Friend, that's the gospel. And that's tomorrow night. Let's pray. Jesus, for your, for your mercy of drinking the cup that we deserved, for the truth of your character always being held intact, for the power of looking that adulterous woman in the eye and saying to her simply, I will pay the bill that you owe. God, you don't look at any of us and say, it's not a big deal, or I'm gonna let this one slide, or at least you're not as bad as your neighbor. You look at each and every one of us and you say, guilty, punishable by death, eternity separated from me. Every single one of us had the exact same case against us. Deserving of death, eternal separation from you, guilty as charged. Punishable by death, eternity apart from you, guilty as charged. God, may we see our sin in light of your perfection and not through our 
sin-stained eyes and sin-stained glasses. May we understand the depths that you went through to drink the cup of wrath that we deserved. And may we in humility respond to that by surrendering our life to you. Would the weight of our sin make us receptive to your gospel? Can you name me pray? Amen.